You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Elizabeth McKenzie is the author of The Portable Veblen, and her new novel is The Dog of the North. Thank you for joining me, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me, Rick. This is a lovely novel, and it's all told in the first-person voice of Penny Brush, and I loved Penny Brush. She was such a great character. Talk about developing this voice. Well, you know, I had started the novel with a few sketches that were in third-person, and oh, thanks for saying that, by the way, because um, the voice, her voice is what's most interesting to me about, or was most interesting to me about writing this. Um, and then when I switched to first, though, it really took off. And I guess I was really interested in the fact that she was a flawed character with uh, some blind spots and some, you know, misunderstandings about herself that get reflected later in comments other characters in the in the book make to her. So uh, I, I've always been interested in self-deluded characters, and I like writers who write about them. Like, I mean, you know, my hero in that respect is Kazuo Ishiguro, because he does the best self-deluded narrators I've ever read. But um, so, yeah, just tracing her evolution through the series of, of events that occur in the book was really fun and, and engaged me completely while I was writing it. You know, what you said was really interesting because there's a lot of action in this book. It's all really fun. It's very funny. But the plot of the book is really the have the mystery of getting to know Penny and knowing who she is, why she's in such an unusual and peculiar position, why her response to everything is sort of unusual. And it's a mystery that we follow through her. The plot arc is who is Penny Rush and why is she this way? And it's super compelling, which is, that's an incredible achievement considering how much action there is in the novel. Well, thank you for saying that. I That's my favorite way to have this book read because, um, you know, I've seen a few reviews that talk about the plot and there, there it seemingly there's a bit of a, a bit of plot in this book <laughs> but yeah again I, how she responds to those events is what I cared about most you know it, it begins in a place that I'm well familiar with which is Santa Cruz California and she's engaged in traveling heading out to Salinas and I've taken people to that exact same strain, train station I called it a strain station, <laughs> and I think that's maybe a, a better way to describe it, since when you're traveling on the train, it's generally not because you're by choice. It's a choice that's being made for you economically or technically, you know, maybe you don't have a car. <laughs> right. In this case, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she's just sold her car um, because she's left... A marriage that wasn't working out and she needed the money and I think she, one of the first things she says in the book is it's never convenient to be without a car in California but nothing in this novel ends up being convenient so 
I, yeah, this is, is, I mean, you could describe this as a novel of inconveniences. Yes, exactly. You know, and it strikes me too that one of the things that I love about this novel is it, it really is, in many ways, it's an action pack. There's always something happening, but it's always something kind of low-key that might happen to me, and my family is pretty unusual. I think most people who have a family that is not, quote, a family of choice, uh, you know, those families do tend to be unusual because, you know, you're tied to people whom you might never want to know (laughs) in reality. Yes. Well, despite... Um, all these strange people, though, that she's connected to, um, not by choice, I think, well, I think she loves them anyway. And I think that's one thing that holds the book together is that despite everything, she cares about these people, um, despite all of the trouble they cause. And then she does meet some new people who become a family of choice. And those people very quickly become important to her, so quickly that her her actual sister is sort of repelled by that. <laughs> you know, um, the marriage, her, she's married to a fellow named Sherman. And at one point she says, and I think this is one of the many lines that's both funny and true or funny because it's true or not funny because it's true, depending on your perspective about these things. Uh, you write, she says, we discover things about our spouses nobody else ever will. Marriage is one long strip tease of the soul. <laughs> you you can make a t-shirt out of that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I yeah, I guess that, I mean, maybe some people will relate to that. <laughs> At this point, he is living with his new girlfriend whose name is B.B. Sinatra. Yes. And there's cocaine involved. So one thing I like about all the characters and the situations in this book is they're they're well within the bounds of reality. And they're actually, you know, sort of tawdry. But they seem kind of weird and fantastic. It's like, you know, dragons and princesses or something. (laughs) But it's B.B. Sinatra and the coke. Well... Yeah, it's funny because I agree with you that there's a lot of low-key things happening that seem strange. And I think that's something I do, I personally do, that I've um, given to Penny as a trait. And that's kind of a propensity to defamiliarize things. Like, I see very normal things as strange all the time. So I I enjoyed having Penny have those same kind of reactions. (laughs) This does feel like a book from the heart. Yeah, it it was. I mean, it it it's a little bit, you know, taken from some personal experiences, you know, of mine some time ago when I was going through a pretty hard time in my life. And um, it took till now to get to that, you know, to get to be able to write about it in a way that um, was fun. <laughs> Well, that's one of the things about a book. You can tell when the author's having fun writing the book because you're having fun reading the book. And despite the, you know, Penny could be a a different character might 
take the, these whole series of experiences and either be angry, annoyed, or depressed. <laughs> and, and not a character you'd want to spend any time with. We want to spend every second we can with Penny because she's just such a delight. And this is in spite of her family, you know, her husband, Sherman, and there's B.B. Sinatra. We fortunately don't get to see B.B., but <laughs> the name says enough. <laughs> And one of the things, and she's immediately, the immediate crisis is she has to go see, meet her grandmother's uh, accountant, his name is Bert Lampy, and her grandmother is named Dr. Pincher. And this brings up something I think I really like about your books is you're very interested in science and the way science functions in our regular society. I mean... Dr. Pincher is like could be you could write a really good science fiction novel about Dr. Pincher. <laughs> but she's in this family novel, so talk about that creation. Well that's I love that you said that. Um I was originally in between this book and the last book, I was thinking of writing a novel that was sort of gonna be modeled on the island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> with Dr. Pincer as the Dr. Moreau character. Um, and I, you know, I kind of, I tried it out from a few different angles and it didn't really take off, but some of the material remains, you know, some of the stuff about her house and her experiments. And so, yeah. There's a lot of very funny sentences in here. Do these things spill off your pen as you write? Do you write or type? I type. Okay. So do the, do these sentences, like there's a great line about... The rats, the dead rats, <laughs> that the cleaning crew finds at at Dr. Pincher's house. And, and as you heard, I could barely even mention that the fact that you had this sentence without laughing because it's just hysterical. What's Did you have this experience of finding <laughs> dead rats? <laughs> I'm afraid so. God. Yeah, no, in my grandmother's later years, you know, she was still a complete tyrant. But um, she wouldn't let it, she was failing to see the state her house was falling into. And I, I, it's hard for me to even describe what we found there when we finally got her out of there. <laughs> Actually, while we were, she was still there even, um, it, was, it was terrifying. In, yeah, in an unnamed relative's house, we found, and this is what's most frightening to me because I have this now, to a certain extent, we found a whole kitchen cabinet full of Trader Joe's vitamins that were furry. Uh. <laughs> and, and I have the Trader Joe's vitamins, but they're not furry yet. But this is like a constant watchword for me. I go, okay, got the vitamins. That's okay. Not furry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there were like jars of unidentifiable liquids and... Yeah, the refrigerator was a nightmare. Um, but, yeah. Now, Dr. Pincher lives in a, in a large house. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you might describe her as a mad scientist. She's mad in both uh, senses of the word. She's angry at everything. And that anger just, like, pops in and out, like, you know, turning the TV to a different channel. It's the anger channel. Oh, yes. good. Thanks, Grandma. Yeah. <laughs> or there's the crazy man. <laughs> yes. So you, she kind of switches between those channels and something that sounds mildly reasonable. 
talk about creating this character and her arc and part in the story. Well, you know, I because as I said, she's based on my actual grandmother. I just and I spent a lot of time with her as a child and and then there was a terrible schism between her and my mother and they didn't speak to each other for 30 years from 1966 to 1996. And I engineered their um, reunion by kind of tricking them and, and telling them one or the other that the other one missed them. And, um, you know, it was sort of my life's, like it was the goal of my life to reunite them because I felt like my mother had really suffered from not connecting with her mother all those years and stuff. So anyway, but I had a lot, I have a lot of material about her. I went to Texas with her to help her with her house down there. I I took many trips with her as a kid. And um, so having things to say about her uh, was no problem. There was more, there's still more. I'll probably write another book about her. (laughs) But, um, but, but showing that there might have been like maybe some good qualities in her too was maybe that was the challenge um, because she really cared deeply about certain things like the radiation victims in Japan. And she did some research and work over there in Nagasaki. And, you know, I, I, I had, she talked about that a lot and um, I admired her position on that. So, you know, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this book is the, you know, relationships between, uh, Penny and her grandmother Penny and her grandfather uh, divorced from from Dr. Pinter Arlo Penny and grandpa's new wife Doris who's I think the only authentically horrible person in the book <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's no part of Doris that that is redeemable that I can am I wrong there I agree with you yeah <laughs> Now, what's interesting, though, is that there's a whole layer of almost unspoken sweetness. As you say, Penny likes, wants to like all these people, wants to be liked by them. But at the same time, there's one point where she says she constantly feels ashamed because she thinks that the person she's with might burst into anger at her. (laughs) Which I think is a very interesting psychological tell. Yeah. um, I think she may have developed that uh, reaction from maybe some of her earlier experiences with Gaspard, who's another character you haven't mentioned yet, her father, her biological father, who was a very critical person when she spent time with him as a child. He was divorced from her mother. And so there's, that's a whole other thread, you know, the, the, the absent father who was very critical. Yeah. He's, he's also equally unpleasant. He's, he's there with Doris in the unpleasant column, but fortunately he's not, doesn't spend much time in the book. Now, Penny's parents have disappeared in Australia they followed the path of uh, Burke and Willis, yeah. which you tell us about. Uh, talk about Australia. Was this something that interested you, or you just said, okay, Australia, that is? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I've, I've wanted to write about the Australian part of my life for a long time, because um, it was back in the 80s that my parents immigrated there. 
And um, I had, I myself, like in the 70s, my, I had gone to a year of high school there. So actually it was eighth grade. And um, so I've spent a reasonable amount of time there. My sister also emigrated there in the 80s, right after college. So she's been there ever since. Um, and so going there has been a big part of my life. And I've, you know, spent a lot of time there and... Um, you know, there, I have feelings about that. And, and, you know, at the time it seemed exciting that they were taking this step, but it's also kind of sad because it made it, it's made it always very, it's always too much of a big deal to see them. You know, it's always, it's not easy to see them. So. That's a long plane ride. It is. Yeah. And it, it can be expensive and, you know, but I guess we've made it work. My sister comes almost every year to see us and, you know, but Bert Lampy is a wonderful character. I like you to talk about creating this character, giving him voice because he's an excellent foil for Penny. I, he, he might be in a worse shape than she is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's going through a lot right now too. He's recently divorced and living in his office, and he has an old van. That's the van of the title, and. Um, He's, but he's always willing to help somebody, and he's gotten sucked into Dr. Pincer's world because she needs so much help, even though she doesn't admit it. And, um, you know, so he's there. He's on Penny's side. He knows that dealing with her grandmother is a pain. And um, he picks her up at the train station, and before you know it, they're at his office. He's offered to put her up, and she realizes he's putting her up on the couch in his office while he's sleeping under the desk on the floor. And that's the beginning of a beautiful relationship. <laughs> you know, I think that that description right there, it strikes me as so much the stuff of life. It has so much the ring of truth. And in the novel, it feels very real. It lends a reality. And simultaneously, because most of us haven't slept in an office, I, I wanted that. I, I won't put myself in either in or out of that category. That said, um, this is one of the things that permeates this book, that the actions like this, signs it's a big action for her because she has no house. So it's you know kind of like the equivalent of the initial shootout in a crime. And it has a similar impact on her because she realizes, oh, my God, now I'm sleeping on this guy's couch in his office. (laughs) Talk talk about, like, you really capture a certain level of life that's between suburb, it's, you know, suburb, beneath suburban bliss without the nets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, someone called it the precariat. But yeah, I think, um, well, one thing that led to those kind of details in this novel was the very short time frame of the novel. The fact that it takes place within just a few weeks. Um, It kept me on a really tight focus on every detail of every day. And so just, you know, where is she going to sleep that day? Like that became part of the plot and, and and the texture of the book because because I was paying attention to it that closely. And that led to some stuff that was actually really enjoyable to write. Um, well, you know, one of the things about this book is, is that 
most novels that feature people who are pretty well grounded in their life, you know, they know what to expect from day to day, even if it's a shootout at the you know, whatever, or, you know, or constant death or <laughs> vampires or werewolves, whatever it is, the people are grounded in their lives. This is the story of a character who has come unmoored and doesn't know where the next night is going to be, and yet she wants desperately to feel moored. So she puts on, she tells her story as if she is moored somewhere, but not, she's not, <laughs> and she knows that too. So there's kind of like a, a sense of self-deception in the novel, but she knows she's deceiving herself. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like, Someone who's out in the ocean, who their ship is sunk and they're clinging to a board, but they feel lucky because they have that board, you know. So, and, and that's actually part of one of the absolutely best parts of this entire novel is at one point when Penny remembers going back, being asked to write a piece of nonfiction. A piece of nonfiction she writes is about her sitting on the beach and seeing a, a grunion in a, like a little hollow in the water, and the grunion starts talking with her and tells her it's a fake grunion. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this tale of the fake grunion is really awesome because it, it, it has the sense of the fantastic, like in a sense that it was really happening at the time, but it's not. You managed to have it both ways, to use the sense of the fantastic and the element of the fantastic, the, the fake grunion, the fish that can magically talk, to externalize things that the character absolutely cannot talk about. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for reading it that way. That's what I was hoping you know, someone would get out of it. Um, yeah, and I let, I one another thing I wanted to do with that is to show that, you know, she may have options in the future that maybe have to do with writing. I mean, maybe that will be her path, but she doesn't know it yet because, um, you know, it, it shows that she thinks metaphorically about her life and and can write about it. Well, in a sense, she experiences her life metaphorically. Yeah. Yeah, right, and that's what makes the the, uh, the novel so enjoyable. And now let, let's get back to Australia. So I'm glad you told me you. So your parents went to, emigrated to Australia. They did. So you know quite a bit about it. The, what you are writing about is is not this, the stuff of uh, the wonderful World Wide Web, except for the World Wide Web of trapping you <laughs> into traveling from Santa Cruz to Australia. Talk about transforming your experience in Australia to fiction, and it must have been pretty unusual for you. I, I don't know anybody else who traveled to Australia. Oh. His parents have, at least. Well, um, you know, actually there's a pretty big, yeah, I don't know anybody either, but there is a fairly big American presence in Australia. Like, I don't know how many hundred thousand people or more, but I actually, that's, pro that's probably not even right. But um, yeah, there, there are some there. Back in the 80s, believe it or not, they thought 
having Reagan as president was the worst thing that could happen to this country. <laughs> oh, and, <laughs> and, and being I, Californians, they were really, they had been very disgruntled by him as governor and some of the things he had said and done. And so when he was elected, they started thinking about it. And, um, you know, and we had already spent time in Australia. My father had a Fulbright there and stuff. So, yeah, so they they made the decision. They went, he got a different job there. And um, my mother was also a geologist and was really interested in the geology of Australia. So she was, you know, once she got there, she took a lot of trips into the outback and to different formations and stuff like that. And, you know, we all as a family went on different trips into the outback and that partly inspired the trip Penny takes in this book. But, it, you know, I think, again, speaking of metaf metaphors, you know, the idea that her, in the book, her parents disappeared in Australia, you know, could be, I think, my way of saying that I felt like my parents disappeared there, even though, you know, they didn't literally. Well, yeah. well this book seems like um, better than therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I'm still like, you know, people have their preoccupations. I mean, Dickens wrote about his childhood all the time. And I, I do tend to go to my family a lot for some for the things that I'm still thinking about and chewing over. Well, you know, it, it one of the things that you do so successfully is to make all this incredibly entertaining and engaging. Um, even though <clears throat> what happens in this novel could be the stuff of almost epic angst on a personal level, you turn it into a really fun kind of caper of a novel. Oh, I'm going to go see Grandma. Oh, Grandma is <laughs> bug nuts crazy. <laughs> oh, I think I'll go to Australia <laughs> with my grandfather, and that's also fair. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, you know, speaking of my grandfather, I, I mean, I think I've always gone for the, um, for the angle that, is humorous when I'm writing. And um, I think it started with him because I, we used to correspond when I was a kid and he was funny and would write me funny letters and then I'd write him back and I would, you know, try to make him laugh. And we would send each other jokes we'd make up and stuff like that. And um, that, you know, that got me started writing actually as a little kid, writing these letters to my grandfather. Um, but... I, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Do you still have those letters? I don't have the ones I sent him. I have probably most of the ones he sent me. They're they're so charming, and you know, I was really really loved that guy. You know, there's a in this novel. One of the things that I think is so enjoyable about the the reading it is that there's a feeling that. You have your character has become so unmoored that you know that in the song literally anything could happen, <laughs> and I think when you were writing this, did you are there versions of this where things are are even stranger? I mean, that, is she kidnapped by aliens? I mean, <laughs> or at least does she think? I mean, I could see that kind of stuff happening, and then your other book too. I think you really come right up to the edge of, of, especially with the Grunion, the fake Grunion, you come right up to the edge of 
right, and all that has some kind of almost overt supernatural or science fictional content, you look at the, you look up over the, that cliff and say, no, no, this is reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I through this the writing of this book, it was you know pretty quick. It took just a little over a year, but every morning I'd wake up and I would be like dying to get back to it because I didn't know what was going to happen next. And, you know, I would just go into the world of it. And sometimes I would take a little detour and I go, no, this, that's not it, you know, but generally I found the way I wanted to go day by day. And, um, you know, and it was just a surprise. And I'm so glad I didn't have, I had like a sense of where I wanted to, the book to go tone wise, but not how. You know, I'm wondering if in writing the novel, you found that what you wrote changed you in such a way that what you what your following writing was also changed by what had your existence and what you would write after you wrote this parts of this novel changed what would follow. In other words, you wrote a scene, and in terms of writing that scene you changed as a person and so that that change is reflected in the next scene so that each thing becomes even more i think essentially realistic and yeah like when i would throw in a line like um penny saying that she was always terrified of meeting people because she thought they were going to discover something about her that they hated. <laughs> I didn't plan that line. I threw it in, but then it kind of revealed something to me about myself. And then it proceeded apace like that. I'd, I'd throw in lines that just came out and then I would think about what that really meant and, you know, what was going on with me that made me say something like that. You know, I, I bet I could have, I could go to that book and highlight every one of those lines and, and the reason is, and I probably, I've marked uh, marked quite a few as is, simply because I found those to be the most compelling parts of the book. And also, it's nice the way this book twists and turns. I mean, it's like most books follow a road that's like laid out on a grid, and you know, you go past one street. Here's the here's you know the shootout street. Then you come up to mystery revival, and then you come up to romance plot street. <laughs> Yours is like driving up a windy road up there in Coralitos, where <laughs> you know it might branch off and go over here. Or you might just drive completely off the road into something that looks like dog patch, which I have done. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was the joy of writing it, um, and like dropping hints along the way, you know, Jory used to talk about, Jory Post mm -hmm. would talk about um, the early inventory that you plant in a story or novel. And it's kind of the stuff you lay down without thinking about it. And then later as you're writing and you're going, well, what what's next? And then you can look back at the inventory you've already put in and say, oh yeah, I, I put that in earlier for some reason. I don't, didn't know why till now, you know? So that happened a lot. You know the the dog of the north is the van in this novel, and it in itself is a character, because I mean, from both on the outside as it get, it undergoes changes on the outside, courtesy of 
Bert's uh, office mate, office neighbor. And also on the inside, it has you know an inventory of stuff that's important and reflective of both Bert and Penny. So uh, is that how you think about your car? <laughs> I have had some old wrecks in the in my time, uh, you know. But yeah, I I for some reason very clearly saw the interior of this van, and whether it's from personal experience or from a mad, you know, or just it came to me, I don't know. But the pinata was really important, and actually, I had a plan for the pinata that I decided at the very end not to execute, but I kept it in anyway because I thought that's something Bert would have. So. You know, um, one of the things uh, I think this novel does effectively is play on the very real and important connection between uh, humor and horror. Uh, because uh, most of the, the man, most of the funniest and best lines are also lines that reflect the character's own inner horror. I mean, we like to think of horror and horror fiction as being dominated by, you know, violence and gore, but that's not what's really horrifying in life. I can tell you what's really horrifying in life, being horrendously embarrassed in front of a large number of people. Uh, that's where I find true yeah, terror. Absolutely, same here. And, you know, I was recently thinking about, someone asked me what made me laugh or what I find humorous, and I think... The awkward situation is what I find most humorous, and particularly like when I, if I can, I, you know, I find myself in situations like that somewhat frequently for some reason, <laughs> and um, being able to tell people about it later and making it sound as horrible or even more horrible than it even was is also really fun for me. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the awkward situation. In fact, someone said if you had to give a TED Talk, what would it be? And I said, um, the awkward situation is productive stimuli. <laughs> you know, well, for me, I think that that is one of the the things that makes this book so full of the ring of truth because, truth be told, most of our internet actions are not like you know, the kind of dialogue you read in books where it's kind of snappy and smart and intelligent. Most of our interactions are, what did you say? Did you really mean that? Did <laughs> yeah, I hear that right? Exactly. Why did I say that? <laughs> yes. yes, I agree completely. Yeah. You know, um, a as a writer, this is an interesting piece for you because it's it really does come down... It, know it, it brings it feels like when I read this I thought boy this feels like like you know uh, Lisa's talking she she you know the, I, so <laughs> I, I'm curious for you are is this how you normally approach writing or is this a book unusual or I mean as far as I can see I, by the end of this book you have absolutely hit hit 10 home runs and won the game and you can go right back and rewind the awkward mobile <laughs> and do it again and again because you've really made a science out of it in a sense <laughs> that's great um yeah i mean i've 
it was the first time I'd written a novel in first person. My other two were in third, and but I've written stories in first person. And, you know, I always kind of felt like if I could just get into the right groove in a first person novel, it would be really fun. And that's what happened finally um, with this one. And a groove at least a, for me a groove is an excellent term for this because and that's what the way the book reads it's kind of, it, it's like you know uh, uh, one of those really long long songs a, a, a shaggy dog tale so to speak where you know they get a, like a kind of a righteous riff going and somebody just keeps singing and singing over and over and and you know that the the sensibility carries this, the story in a kind of a musical fashion. Not do you listen to music when you write? I don't actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean I have a few times, but generally no. So this is all just the, written to the music in your brain. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, you you. One of the things that that I thought was interesting was. Uh, Pincher's whole house, in a sense, it reminds me of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's *The House of Seven Gables*, where you know it, it's really reflective of you know the the different rat holes of her personality. <laughs> God, yes, yeah, I, and I thought of also Miss Havisham's, you know, *Great Expectations* too, like the sort of the dusty memories everywhere, um, but. Yeah, yeah, it's... You know, the the abandoned houses of our parents, and, and that that's a very interesting thing to me because in there we find bits of our old selves, and, you know, you can just look on something and think, oh, my God, I... Th- I got that report card in third grade. <laughs> yeah. That was like, you know, in the different world completely. Oh, God, yeah. And, and I think you do a good job of showing, too, the collisions of the past and the, of the distant past and the current present that occur throughout, you know, our lives. And uh, sometimes they're awkward and funny, but also sometimes they'll tell us something kind of horrifying about ourselves that we need to know. And I'd like to talk about just understanding, you know, the the with humor and having a good outcome, you know, the terrible and awful things that can happen to us. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like an archaeological dig when after my grandmother had passed away, you know, to go through her house and see all the strange things she had kept and she'd had sort of a I mean, through her own doing, she'd had kind of a sad life although she maintained that she was on top of things. Um, You know, she'd lived alone for over 30 years, not even speaking to her only daughter and only child and alienating a lot of people, but keeping up the pretense that she was, uh, I don't know, like that she was still like in her prime or something and charging around and she opened a medical office at her home instead of keeping her medical office downtown, and I shudder to think what went on in there. <laughs> um, some of that's in the book, actually. Um, but yeah, and then the same with my parents. You know, my sister and I didn't know what to do with their house after they were gone, and we 
there was a lot of indecision about it when we went back to it, you know, just looking at their book collections, for instance, and, you know, finding things like that they had intended to give us with like a little card in it with a note to one of us, you know, it was very touching and poignant. And that's, I think, the true power of this book in that it makes you laugh out loud a lot. And yet, there are parts of it that are incredibly sad and make you look back on that laughter and think, I was laughing, but that was kind of more like a dog barking. (laughs) (laughs) In that, that's it, you know, your laughter is an inadvertent reaction to something that isn't immediately threatening, but in other situations would be terrifying and maybe in fact life threatening and to you the power of this book is that it shows us that characters who are you know they make us laugh but then we kind of look back and think oh boy all that laughter was tinged with something i just never even crocked (laughs) well that sounds good i like that you say that um i once taught um for three years, I taught a course on humor at UCSC. And, you know, one of the things that is sad about humor is that it comes out of incongruity. So maybe some of that humor you're talking about here does comes from that, from incongruity, you know, things that... It, they have... What you do is you create situations that have deep emotional resonances that are unresolved. And in the moment, you use language to resolve them into laughter but those incongruencies when you get a clearer picture of them are maybe not quite so humorous but they're touching and sweet or also examples of people being really brave and and putting on a front for everything's really good when everything is pretty darn bad yes yeah there's you know Bert is such a good example of that because he's, you know, he's got such a quixotic hopefulness about optimism about the future, even though his circumstances would not necessarily support that. Uh, you mean quixotic? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's Bert's dog, um, who is the name Quixotes is a mispronunciation of Quixote that was. A private joke between him and his ex-wife. So, and I, I think again that um, is a good illustration of the layers of emotion that you know run through th- this novel. Thank you. <laughs> One of the things that here's a, a good question that you ask: Is it a love story for the ages or scientific fastidiousness run amok? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that uh, that exemplifies your interest in science, and you know that's the there's the horror side of the equation, and there's the love side of the equation, and in between them is laughter. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not a scientist myself, but a lot of people in my family were. My my mother was a geologist. I mean you know, with a scientific bent. My grandmother, a doctor. My grandfather was an engineer first and later became a pilot. 
um, was really interested in prospecting and mineralogy and so forth. And yeah, so that is a, that is an interest, an amateur interest of mine. You you also write about Burke and Wills. Uh, they were lost in Australia, as are her parents. And uh, I think that the, the it, it just struck me just now that uh, Penny is lost wherever she goes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. That makes total sense. Yes. So, uh, but talk about uh, Burke. Wills in their journey and the parallels to the to the parents' journey. Sure, yeah. Um, well, Burke and Wills um, were some explorers that were sent out to sort of chart what was going on in the outback, and they they never came back. It was it, it's um, t- the story is told in Alan Moorhead's book Cooper's Creek, and um, in the novel, Penny's mother was really obsessed with doomed expeditions in Australia. She had marked up her copy of Cooper's Creek. And also um, there's a novel by the Nobel laureate Patrick White called Voss. And that was about the Leichhardt expedition in Australia where he never came back either. So it was, um, it, she was very captivated by those expeditions. And, um, you know, that definitely, and, and took a lot of trips into the outback herself sometimes with a team of geologists, other times, you know, with my father. And, you know, that lent itself to being fictionalized as uh, an occasion for her disappearance. <laughs> you, you know, it, it strikes me that uh, your character's parents went to Australia and were lost, and your parents went to Australia and were no, not lost, but, I mean, in a sense, it, it was, a, there was a, a loss for you. Exactly. That's what I was getting at. Exactly. Uh, they were lucky in that they weren't, weren't around to see what, what happened in the last four years if they thought Reagan was bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I sometimes think, you know, I wonder if I would ever move there, you know, like, what, could my sister get me in, you know, but um, I, I haven't made that move yet. Is that something you you would consider doing? Well, I, I always have a great time when I'm there, but I think I just have too much of a, a love for Santa Cruz and my community here to do that. This book leaves open, I, I mean, uh, the possibility of a sequel. Do you think? Oh, absolutely. Oh. I would read that in a heartbeat. Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've never thought of that before. Oh, well, you should, because I can tell you right now that wherever Penny goes, I would go. Because, okay. uh, I mean, I think that there are more people who will get Penny and understand her than might be willing to admit that <laughs> fact, that, that America is a lot more... Are a lot less certain of itself than it seems, and most Americans are a lot less certain of themselves than it seems. And Penny is just, you know, she's such a great embodiment of that. She wants to be positive. She wants to be out there. She's going to help her. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was writing this, I thought, I'm not afraid to be embarrassed anymore. Like, I can have her admit things that I would never have put into a book before, you know, because, you know, maybe I would have been 
like I say, embarrassed to admit, you know, have a character who could be construed as me say them, you know, but why not? (laughs) I think that, you know, the realer you get, the better it gets. And I think, too, it reflects um, an author who is at comfort with herself, who understands herself and understands reality and at the bottom of the, at the end of the day and the bottomest of the bottom lines, reality is what matters. Well, I don't know if the author totally accepts the way she is, but but she's trying. Have you started another book yet? No, I've got like some notes. I have some notes and some potential little vignettes, but they haven't suggested a form yet. Um, I'm working on a short story collection right now. Uh, well, I look forward to the re- return to Penny and Bincher. I mean, well, thank and you, Dale. I mean, they they are these are characters. I think you know, in terms of the value of reading a book, is one of the things about reading a book is that there are scenes where you go, okay, I'm willing to read this because what's coming up next is gonna be you know the scene where the monster comes out. I'm I'm down with that. In this book. Every page was made me want to, I was happy to be there, and what made me happiest was knowing that Penny was going to be there telling the story on every page of this book, and that's really what matters, and that's a hard nut to crack. Well, I can't tell you how much it means to me to hear you say that. That's that's what you know one would hope, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything is easier said than done and less known than we uh, think. I've been speaking with Elizabeth McKenzie. Her new novel is The Dog of the North. Thank you for joining me, Elizabeth. Well, thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.